You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'd like to now introduce one of the jewels in the crown of science fiction, somebody who's been there and done that for um, through the whole career of the field, I, uh, I would say, from, from jump. And um, Frank Robinson, as I understood it, uh, his first published story was sold by Fred Pohl, who was in an agent to Astounding. Is that correct, Frank? Yeah. Yeah, which... Uh, that really puts you in what I'd call the the deep ecology of science fiction. Since then, he's he's um, he's done a lot of different kind of writing, including uh, writing thrillers and in in many ways inventing the modern thriller with a, a collaboration he did called The Glass Inferno, which later became The Towering Inferno, the movie. And he's done some other work with movies we were talking about, but we'll leave that uh, we'll leave his bitter comments on that until later on. <laughs> his most recent, uh, one of his, uh, he also has done a lot of history and I would say very visual and artistic history of the science fiction and pulp field uh, with, uh, uh, with, with books which can sell, well you'll see them out on the table. The, uh, his history of science fiction in the 20th century is one of the most uh, beautiful coffee table books, and most expensive, I might add, that I've seen in quite a while. Um, with all that, I'm hoping that we might get a short story from a, our esteemed colleague and um, very fine writer, Frank Robbins. Uh, this will be the very first time that I've done a reading of any of my own material before an audience. Uh, usually it's an audience of one, and they're a captive audience. They, could, they can't leave. Uh, could anyway. That be, could that be true? You, you, don't, <laughs> like, you don't read? No. Ah. I never have. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, <laughs> they promised me a free meal. How could I refuse? <laughs> um, I write thrillers. I write thrillers which have beginnings, middles, and ends, and if I don't satisfy you at the end of the book, I don't deserve the 10, 15, or 20 bucks you paid for it. Uh, I've had a lot of luck with uh, some novels. Uh, I did a series of collaborations with Tom Scorcher. Uh, techno thrillers, I think they called them, the, uh, the Glass Inferno, a.k.a. the Towering Inferno, <coughs> was the first. Uh, after Tom died, I started writing books on my own, under my own name only. And I was, uh, uh, the first one was The Dark Beyond the Stars, which, uh, with all due deference to the present novel, uh, The Dark is part of the best book I ever wrote. Uh, it's out there on the table. It should have won the Hugo. It didn't, but uh, there's a lot of movies that should have won Oscars and didn't, too. Um, however, uh, the current book is out to the agent, and in the current, uh, the current 
atmosphere of publishing, et cetera, it may be a while before it sells, so you people are getting an advance on it. Uh, it's what could be called a religious thriller. Uh, there's only been a couple of those. I think the Da Vinci Code is the one that's most obvious. Uh, this one, um, how can I say this? Uh, to make it very, very short, uh, this is an antichrist book. And I'm not a religious man, so this is all fiction, believe me. But um, uh, God gave us all free will. And the moment that he did so, we were all out from under God's thumb. And we could do anything we wanted. And the first thing we wanted to do was to kill each other. Uh, God later on gifted us with Jesus to show us the error of our ways. And since there hasn't been a year without a war for 2,000 years, uh, that hasn't worked out too well either. <laughs> By this time, a very disgusted God has decided to correct his big mistake. So he sent the errand boy. Title of the book is The Errand Boy. The main character is named Jason. Uh, I'd forgotten all about uh, Friday the 13th. I don't know where I got the name <laughs> from, but uh, it is a serious novel and something of a cautionary novel as regards exactly what we are doing with this great, big, wonderful world that we used to live in. But errand boys are made. God does not wave his hand and create an errand boy. Errand boys are taught. So anyways, this is a couple of uh, uh, chapters from the errand boy. Jason, age six. By age six, Jason was the ringleader of the other boys in the home. They only lost interest in the new games he invented when he set up the crash and tried to deliver a sermon like he had heard the Reverend Clayton deliver. The Claytons loved him and for a while he thought they might adopt him. When they didn't, he went back to looking for the one family he had been told would. The other boys were curious as to just who had told him and when he tried to describe what had happened, they had stared at him wide-eyed, then silently turned and left, not believing a word he had said. It had happened a few months before, just after supper, when he had been alone in the living room and playing with the crash, setting up the figures of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus in a row and preaching at them, keeping his voice slow so nobody would hear him. He was waving his arms like he had seen Mr. Clayton do. It seemed to be a part of any sermon. When he was suddenly struck by the silence, he couldn't hear the rattle of pots and pans in the kitchen and the shouts of the boys in the other room building castles at Lincoln Logs had faded away. He felt like he was smothering in a big pillow of silence. Then there was a sudden warmth and a feeling of affection. He had felt like that the day he had been born, a day he remembered distinctly, 
though when he told the other boys, they had hooted and went away to the kitchen to beg the cook for cookies. It had been totally black. He couldn't remember anything before that. Then there had been a sudden flash of light, and somebody was holding him, and he felt nothing but warmth and reassurance. He had been wrapped in paper towels and taken to the foundling home, given what felt like a kiss, and then fell asleep in the blankets of the heated bassinet. He remembered all of it. This time he felt flashes in his head, and once more a wave of reinsurance. Nobody spoke, but he suddenly knew that within a few weeks somebody would adopt him. Somebody he wouldn't like, but who would be a great teacher and from whom he could learn a lot. Who would it be? He would know when the time came. He would become a very great man and perform great deeds. His life would be hard, but life was hard for everybody, and he could always count on the love and protection of somebody. Then the silence began to fade, and little wisps of noise began to seep through the silence. He clutched the baby Jesus to himself and felt a smile, and suddenly the plaster Jesus turned to gold. How would he know who would adopt him? He would know, he felt, but he mustn't let anybody else take him away. Then the room filled with boys, and the silence had gone, and the baby Jesus had turned back to plaster. There was a string of would-be adoptive parents after that, almost all of whom loved his red hair and thought he was cute. He coughed in their faces, and one time when it looked serious, the wife was fat and pleasant-looking and hugged him until it almost hurt. He stuck a finger down his throat and vomited all over a dress front. The most dangerous couple after that was a cheerful, middle-aged man and a thin, quiet wife whom Jason could tell the Claytons approved of highly. Their name was Murray, and Jason turned them down by saying quietly, Fuck you, Mr. Murray. A, worm, a ward he had heard from the cook when she'd burned herself on the stove. In one sense, the least likely were the Zions. They were street preachers, Reverend Clayton said, whatever that was. Mr. Mr. Zion was rude and loud, although Jason thought his wife was friendly. Every third sentence, Rudy Zion said, was a biblical quotation, most of which Jason recognized. The silence had told him he would be adopted by a great teacher, and while Jason didn't think Rudy Zion was great, there was no doubt he could learn a lot from him. He found a small, sturdy chair and climbed up on it and quoted the Bible right back at Mr. Zion. The adoption went through within a few weeks. When the time came, he packed his few belongings in a small suitcase, wrapping the plaster Jesus in a worn sweater to protect it. It flashed gold just before putting it in the case. He had made the right decision. Jesus had been a very great man. There was no one more important until now. Want to hear about Rudy Zion? Yep. A lot of fun. <laughs> On the street they call me Rudy Zion. Name used to be all band, but now it's Rudy Zion or Preacher Zion. Sounds more biblical. Louise can make you tea or considering the heat, bring in some soda. Got orange, Coke, and Pepsi, just name your poison. 
He glanced at Salma's headscarf and said, you a Muslim? We don't see many of you people out this way. Well, come in, come in, make yourself at home. Salma found Udi Zion off-putting right from the start, a large muscular man slowly turning the flab, red-haired, now fading, bully type in his 50s. The sleeves of his yellow striped shirt were rolled up, the shirt open to the third button to show a sagging chest. She had no idea what she had expected a street preacher to look like, thin and fanatical maybe, a Bible in one hand, pumping the air with the other, a man willing to fall on his knees and lead his pickup congregation in prayer. Rudy Zion struck her as a man who didn't so much praise the Lord as sell him, believe in the Lord Almighty or else. His wife was the opposite. She had stood a few feet behind Rudy when they'd come in, looking faintly bemused by her husband. She smiled at Brian and Salma. So what will it be, folks? Nothing for me, Brian said. Salma said, tea if you please. Earl Grey or herbal? Regular would be fine. Once Louise had left the room, Rudy said, she likes to put on hers, bless her. Just plain old Lipton's always tasted fine to me. He relaxed in a red velvet-covered easy chair, a king upon his throne. The room was what Th Salma might have expected after meeting Rudy. A large, colored portrait of Jesus over the fireplace, a bookcase filled with Bibles and books about the Bible, some illustrated volumes about the Holy Land, and above all, a large golden cross hanging on the wall. Louise came in a moment later with a tray holding a small black iron teapot and placed it on the end table. So what can I tell you folks? Rudy frowned at Ryan. Something about what it's like to be a street preacher? I understand you're from some small newspaper in the Bay Area and you would like a little local color from around here. Ask me anything. I know everybody in town and I sure know the preaching business inside and out. A lot of the evangelical preachers with their big box churches do better than I do, but I've done all right. He waved his hand around the room. I own this house and everything in it. Louise winced and Salma guessed she was part of the everything. Woody looked at her and now his smile was a smirk. And this is the little woman, right? Secretary, Salma said, her voice cold. Woody murmured, I bet and turned back to Brian. So ask me anything, Mr. Brian, I'm your man. What do you mean by big box churches? Rudy opened his arms in an expansive gesture. The Walmarts and the Costcos of preaching, the Crystal Palaces down around LA with mammoth pipe organs, a choir of hundreds, and congregations in the thousands. But let me tell you, brother, you don't save souls by the thousands in those places. You save them on the street corners by the ones and twos, the downs and outers who don't have a place to sleep and not much to eat. When these people come to Jesus, they mean it. God lives through them every minute of the day, not just when they let him in the front door on Sunday. Do they stay saved, Sama asked, the members of your street congregation? Woody stared at her for a moment, frowning. Little lady, that's why they call it the living church. Religion is an ongoing process. It's a little like the 12-step program. You don't give up booze after one session. You have to give it up every day. And when you come to Jesus, you ask him for salvation every night when you go to bed and every morning when you get up. 
Pastor Clayton said you adopted a boy from his orphanage some 15 or so years ago, Brian asked. Rudy couldn't hide the disappointment in his eyes. He wasn't going to be the star of the show after all. I know that was a long time ago, Brian said, but I wonder if you remember anything about him. He was a redhead, like you. Rudy looked at Brian, suspicious, and managed a beatific smile. Suffer the little children to come unto me. That's from Matthew 18.3. Read stop by Pastor Clayton's to borrow a Bible. Remind me next week to take it back. You hear, Louise? And there was this little tyke about six years old, hair as red as mine at the time. Couldn't understand why he was still a beautiful little boy, smart as a whip. And he already knew his Bible. Expected that since he was living with the Clayton's blessing. And he recited a passage from the good book to us. Isaiah 1-3, the part where it says, A little child shall lead them. It was like a sign from the Lord, and we decided to give him a home. He was a very nice boy, Louise cut in. Rudy found it a shush, Louise, I'm talking. Psalmist said, did Jason help you out at all? I mean when you were out preaching. Rudy was, was silent for a moment, studying her. Then, proudly, it was my idea. Jason knew his Bible backwards and forwards by the time he was six. So I dressed him all in white, and he would come with us on our preaching trips. Louise would gather a crowd with a tambourine, and I'd give a short introduction and then tell everybody I'd like them to meet little brother Zion, a young Jesus on earth. He had a sweet voice, and it was loud, and they really listened when he warned all the sinners they'd go to hell if they didn't come to Jesus right away. They came all right, and we sure didn't have trouble with the collection plate. That boy was a real drawer. Any newspapers ever interview you? Print a feature story about the boy, Brian asked. Rudy nodded, his eyes bright with remembrance. Biggest story we ever got was when we went to San Francisco and helped a fellow Bible thumper conduct one of his baptism services in a little pond in one of their parks. We took off our shoes, and Jason was right there in the water with us, wet up to his knees. Did he have any friends, Summer asked. Again, the frown. Rudy didn't like her as much as she liked as much as she didn't like him and was finding it hard to be polite. No, 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 not around here. We didn't know any young boys that would be up to Jason's standards. We thought the locals would just pollute his mind. He'd, we'd come home at night and sing a psalm or two, and Jason would study the Bible. He was writing little sermons now, and Louise and I thought they were pretty good. He even recited one or two on the street, and the crowd really liked them. They worshipped young Jason, let me tell you. Did he have any close friends, Sama asked. Rudy was getting upset. Little lady, don't try and put words in my mouth. You never met the kids around here. If you had had a kid, you don't, do you? You wouldn't have let any of the local trash inside your house. We sure didn't. None of them ever hold, heard of soap and water. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he was old, he will not depart with it from it. That's Proverbs 22.6. Sama had the picture. Jason was his meal ticket, and Rudy took good care of the boy all right. If he had no friends, then he didn't play much, did he, Sama said. Rudy stared at her for a long moment. I never said he didn't have any friends. There was a little girl next, next door that we encouraged him to play with. 
do our best to see he didn't grow up queer. Any disciplinary problems? Kids that age usually managed to get into trouble. Rudy's lips became a straight line. Not in this, not in this house, not with this family. And what would happen if he failed to toe the mark? Sama knew it was the wrong question the moment she asked it, but she couldn't help it. Rudy stared at her for a long moment, then lurched out of his chair. I thought this was supposed to be about me. Sorry to see I was wrong. We should have been paid for all the years we took care of that brat. How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. That's Shakespeare's King Lear, folks. If you had any kids, you'd know what I mean. He turned to his wife. You can see them out, Louise. Too bad guests don't have more manners these days. Want to hear any more? You can say no. No, no, no. We want to hear the next. Okay, I will give you three short chapters. One of them will show you what Jason really is. That's the one we want. If that's the one you want, that's the one you'll get. Jason realized he was in trouble. This is Jason, a lot older. How much? Hmm? What's our timeline? How, how much older is he? Uh, Jason was six when he started. He's now in his 18, 19. Jason realized he was in trouble the moment he got into the car. He had walked slowly down the street leading out of town, lingering a moment under the streetlights. Half a dozen cars went by before a black Lexus pulled over, the front door opened, and the driver leaned out. You want a ride, kid? Where are you going? Reno, Jason said, and then was sorry he had said it. He didn't like the driver, mid-30s, soft face, and what Jason guessed was a pudgy body wrapped up in an expensive blue Armani suit, wispy blonde hair receding and designer glasses. Jason edged away in the driver and shrugged and said, it's late at night if you want to lift the Reno, call in. He really didn't have a choice. Jason started to climb back and go- caught a glimpse of a hard-looking brunette wrapped in the arms of the driver's muscle, a stocky man, younger than the driver, a physical type. The driver shook his head, not in the back, pal. That's reserved for my friend and his lady. Up front, give me somebody to talk to. Jason shrugged and opened the front door, holding on to his backpack. The driver looked disgusted. Look, fat boy, it's going to be crowded enough as it is, and I don't want you in my lap. Throw it in back. Jason hesitated again, and the driver started the engine. In or out, up to you. Jason set his backpack on the rear floor as far into the front seat as he could push it. You got a name, kid? Jerry, Jason said. Jerry Hansen. Martin, the driver said, holding out a fat hand, Marty for short. The lump in back is, Swe- is Swenson, call him Swede, and his lady love is Lucy Godiva. No shit, stage name. Tahoe City was falling behind, and Marty goosed the car up to 70. What are you going, what, what you got going for you in Reno? See some friends, Jason said vaguely. Kind of li- late at night to be dropping in on them, isn't it? They're expecting me. Sure they are. Marty swerved to pass a slower card on the right and swore on his breath. Dumb shits ought to be against the law to let him drive. Then glancing over at Jason. So you're on the road in the middle of the night on your way to Reno. 
well-dressed college boy, very possessive of his precious backpack. Ought to make a killing at the tables? I don't gamble, Jason said. He was feeling more and more uneasy. His knife was strapped to his calf, but he wouldn't be able to reach it in time if he needed it. Marty laughed. Never thought you were a gambler. It never crossed my mind. He half turned to talk to the man in the back seat. What do you think, Swede? Think our guest is hiding something? The response was muffled. You find out I'm busy. He could handle both of them, Jason thought, but not like this, crowded into the front seat with his backpack jammed underneath him. We're businessmen, Marty said. You are too, right? You're going to Reno to make a killing, and so are we, and neither one of us is going to hit the slaps of the tables. Hitting the gamblers is something else. He grinned. I'd offer you a line, but this business is like selling candy. You can't make money if you eat all the merchandise. I don't take drugs, Jason said. Right. When you get home, fat boy, have your jacket dry cleaned. It stinks a pot. Jason said, I don't know what you're talking about. Marty glanced over at him. Sure you do. Once you shed your partner, 100% goes to you. No 30 or 50% to anybody else. And you got the list of all the customers, right? Jason felt for the knife strapped to his cap, his security blanket. I don't sell drugs. Come on, Marty scoffed. You're a pothead and probably in the same business. In fact, I'm sure of it. I've got powder, my guess is you've got pills, big with the college crowd. You shed your partner and you're holding the client list, a bunch of other college types, right? We've got the A-list, the high rollers and those who like to sniff two lines and call us again in the morning. Double your money, son. Me and Swede, we're righteous, we're righteous dealers. Cut you in fair, fair and square if you cut us in. I'm not carrying any drugs, Jason said in a tight voice. Marty sighed, play it your way, college boy, all alone in the middle of the night with the fortune on your backpack and relying on the kindness of strangers. Not very smart. Marty was planning something, Jason thought, but he had no idea what. Minutes later, Marty pulled over on the shoulder. Okay, folks, everybody out, pee break. Wake her up, Swede, she'll wet her panties if you don't. There was a scramble in the back seat, and Jason opened his door to get out, reaching under the seat to grab his backpack. It happened suddenly, and it caught him by surprise. Marty lifted a foot, jammed it in his stomach, and shoved. Jason grabbed for the side of the door, missed, and went flying onto the shoulder. He rolled, heard Marty shout, You had your chance, frat boy. Then the door slammed, and a moment later the Lexus was disappearing down the highway. Jason got to his feet and stared after the dwindling rear lights of the Lexus. He had been an asshole. He shouldn't have gotten into the car in the first place. He knew better. He lucked out ten minutes later. A lonely trucker picked him up and tried talking to him, but Jason was too busy looking for a truck stop with a black Lexus parked in front and thinking what he was going to do when he found it and to the driver. Jesus Christ, kid, what's it take for you to open up? Where are you from? Where are you going? What do you do for a living? I got four, four, four more hours before I can unload and hit the sack. They rounded a curve, and on the right side of this was a small diner with a Good Eats sign in the window next to a two-pump gas station. The Lexus was parked under some tall pines near a streetlight. Right here, Jason said, trying to hide his excitement, as far as I'm going. I ought to kick you out ten miles up the road and let you walk back, the driver muttered. Jason jumped out and walked to the diner, keeping to the shadows. Through the window, he could see the backs of Marty, Swede, and his girlfriend, 
and a small family, father and mother and two kids. Marty and company would have had time for a burger and a couple of beers and be getting ready to leave. The Lexus and an old Chevy were a dozen yards from the diner. Jason edged up to the Lexus and looked in. There was no shadow where his backpack should have been poking out from under this front seat. He swore to himself, things weren't going to be so easy after all. Where the hell had they put it? There was a the sound of the restaurant door opening, and Lucy came out and walked over to the gas station, fumbled with the key, and opened the door at the side. Customers had to use the John in the gas station, Jason thought. The restaurant was too, too small to have one of its own. A moment later, the door opened slightly, and Lucy reached out and hung a hand-lettered occupied sign on the doorknob, then closed it again. Ten to one, the key only worked one way. It opened the door, but once inside, you couldn't lock it. Discouraged junkies on the way to Reno who wanted privacy to shoot up. When you left, they took in the sign and locked the door after you. A moment later, Lucy left, locked the door, and went back to the restaurant. Another minute passed, and then Marty came out, a newspaper in the, under his arm. Jason circled a little to his left and caught a glimpse of the inside of the john when Marty opened the door. Three stalls, no door on any of them, a large mirror over the sink. Not good, but no help for it. But it wouldn't matter if Marty were concentrating on his paper. A second later, Marty's hand came out to hang the occupied sign on the door again. Piece of cake. Jason stood slightly behind the building so nobody could see him and stripped off his clothes. It'd be close quarters. He'd end up a bloody mess, and he didn't have a spare pair of pants or a jacket. He pulled off his underwear and socks, placed them on his clothes, then was naked and ready for wet work. He opened the door, slipped quietly inside, and looked in the mirror over the sink. Marty was in the last stall, reading, and didn't even look over the top of his paper. For Christ's sake, Swede, close the door, will you? You'll let in the mosquitoes. Jason took two quick, silent steps to Marty's stall and ripped away the newspaper. Marty glanced up, startled and pale. Jesus, kid, why'd you take off your clothes? Then, I'm not the type, man, honest to Christ. I never would have pegged you as a... What did you do with my backpack, Jason interrupted. Marty decided to tough it out. What are you so worried about? There was nothing in it. The backpack, Jason repeated. What did you do with it? I told you, frat boy, there was nothing in it, so we dumped the pack a few miles back. Marty tried to struggle to his feet, reaching for his shorts and pants down around his ankles. Jason pushed him back on the wooden toilet seat. He juggled his knife in his right hand. The backpack, he repeated. We'll buy you another one, Marty stuttered, his eyes wide. Put on your clothes and we'll take you to Reno, just like we said we would. They had dumped it, Jason thought. Shit. And Marty could identify him. He grabbed Marty by the hair and yanked his head back, then finished with the knife. It was quick work, just like he'd seen in the training camps in Pakistan, where they used prisoners in the demonstrations. But there was blood everywhere. He reached behind Marty and flushed the toilet and backed away. Christ, blood all over the floor and all over himself. He rinsed his knife in the sink, then stamped some paper towels and wiped the blood off his chest and arms. He followed with another paper towel sponge bath so he wouldn't feel s sticky. He walked back to the stall. Marty had hung his coat on a hook to one side of the cubicle, and Jason ran his hands quickly through the pockets. 
A wallet was in one of the inside pockets, neat. He felt in the blood-soaked trousers for the key fob for the Lexus, then washed, washed his hands again. There was money in the wallet, a great deal of it, most of it in big bills. He had just put the key in the starter of the Lexus when he saw the restaurant door open and Lucy came out again. She walked over the John door and pounded on it. For Christ's sakes, Marty, let's go. What'd you do, die in there? Jason watched while she jiggled a knob and then disappeared inside. He hadn't bothered to look through Marty's pockets for the key to the John. He found the backpack three miles down the road. It was lying in the middle of a stretch of white gravel, easy to spot. He opened it and quickly ran through the contents. They were jumbled, but he, would expect, he had expected that. Nothing was missing. The mason jar with the chrysalis in it, with the chrysalis in it, had been cushioned by the, his glasses, by his clothes, and wasn't broken. He picked it up and kissed the glass. Thank God. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.